right. In three, two, one, boom. Some man, we're back. We're back. We're back. Where did we go? Where were we? And we're back suddenly from wherever it was. <laughs> hey, uh, was listening to your podcast with uh, the guy from Ben and Jerry's. Pretty good. I really liked it. Yeah, the big thing I really took away from that podcast, you know, which Ben and Jerry's has been famous for for a while, is they do something very different to every other brand. A lot of brands think about building some sort of momentum around their products, their services, their commitment to the world. You know, they want to build a movement in their own right, which is great. And, you know, that's a that's a very valid ambition. What they do, which is so differently, is they look at those movements that are already out there, those grassroots movements, whether it's around climate change or sustainable agriculture or whatever it might be, and um, you know, white suprematism, really taking that issue on, and they play into those movements. You know, they don't presume to be the experts, but rather they rally all their stakeholders to support those existing movements, and that gives them legitimacy. It makes sure that they're working with the experts on the ground, and it also gives them uh, greater momentum because they're playing into something that's already underway, as opposed to trying to build something of their own right. And I think what they're really sensitive to is the fact that. A lot of brands kind of have very well-intended ambitions in terms of impact, but they try and create their own campaigns. And when that campaign is over, the issue stops to be important, you know, ceases to be important. And you never want to be in that situation. So I thought, you know, lots of great insights from Jay. Yeah. It, it, I think what was most interesting to me was that he was saying the founders started this business to basically not have your typical business. Like they didn't want to, yeah. like they didn't want to, work in a nine to five job they want they were just throwing chunks of cookie dough into an ice cream when it was just abnormal and they wanted to defy the status quo the question now is who is defying the status quo at this moment in time and what will the future behold yeah i think it's very true a lot of the companies that people now think are you know household names they all started by folks who absolutely clueless, which is very comforting to all of us budding entrepreneurs. Um, and they just had a sort of almost a, like I spoke to um, one of the co-founders of uh, Dave from um, Warby Parker yesterday. And I said, why do you call it Warby Parker? And he said, well, there's, there's this novel, you know, that we like the names and we wanted to make sure we had this a name that was an empty vessel and we wanted to fill it with our own meaning. meaning. We didn't want to give some name that telegraphed what we're about. You know, Ben and Jerry's, they're, they're just doing what they love. They're almost like what they did to, as a reaction to what everyone else is doing then went mainstream. So I think we've got to trust our instincts as entrepreneurs. We've got to trust what we're passionate about innately within us. I think too often, well, I know this is true of me. I slept my butt all around the world living out different versions of success as I understood them from other people only to find that you return to where you began, which is yourself. What do I want to do? What is my kind of unique set of skills? I mean, what sort of impact would be most meaningful to me? So I think, you know, and I'm only speaking about myself, but I, 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 I do imagine a lot of people spend their life chasing something other than themselves only to find that it was right in front of them all the time. You know? How do you help companies walk the walk? Like Warby Parker, what specifically are they doing that's intentional about their organization where they are having a deep impact? You know, it's a good question. And we're not working with Warby Parker, but this is just interviewing them for my podcast. Sure. Um, but uh, 
you know, they do several things. Firstly, their business model is based on a buy one, give one. So, you know, when you buy a pair of glasses, another is given to somebody in need, which is especially acute in the developing world where, you know, the ability to concentrate, the ability to learn, the ability to see or read is just, you know, so consequential. Um, and then secondly, you know, they've done a lot of things in terms of their supply chain management to make sure that they don't have a negative impact. They have um, supported their workers um, in extraordinary ways during COVID-19. They are very diligent about civic engagement right now, working with a number of organizations to inspire people, you know, um, to get out to vote. And, you know, there are $1.6, $1.7 billion company now that has never lost sight of the fact that their fundamental business model is to make sure that they provide a fundamental service, which is to give someone a pair of glasses, but that has an equivalent impact for someone out there in the world. And I think there's a lot of sort of one-for-one models out there or well-intended businesses out there, but few take it to scale and few have that sort of success and as a function of success have such enormous impact around the world. Uh, do you, what do you like about that buy one, give one, uh, give back model? I mean, I remember Tom's shoes. Yeah, I think sure. we worked closely with them. We did. We I did. also heard that like that also had kind of a negative of, uh, impact on some of those communities where some of those retailers that were shoe vendors were losing or going out of business and, and uh, it kind of had a ripple effect in those economies as well. Have you heard that too? Um, well, we worked with Tom's, my company, we first in 2015, 2016, redefining their purpose and their positioning the marketplace. And we, we did a, their first national television campaign and things like that. And I was actually interim CMO in there for a few months. Um, and at the time, they were working on some very important things, impact reporting and, um, you know, really up-leveling their supply chain and, and making sure that, you know, they were doing everything they could as, as well as they could on the strength of their one-to-one model. Mm. As for whether it hurt people in certain markets, <clears throat> I think I did hear at some ru- a rumor at some point that you know giving away these products was robbing you know other you know vendors or sh- shoe salespeople of sales. But I thought it was I don't know whether it was a sort of one of those urban myths out there or where, how substantive it was. I mean, I was very close to the company for a while, and I actually don't know. Um, but my understanding is of all the places where they make contributions in country around the world for giving partners like World Vision and so on, you know they were really feeling it filling a need that was absent. So, mm. you know, the origin story of Tom's is that, you know, Blake went to Argentina and saw kids without shoes and out, having no shoes doesn't just mean dirty feet. It means you can't go to school. It means certain, you know, hygiene uh, challenges and there's a huge knock-on effect due to a lack of education. So all of that is to say that um, they were working in countries to deliver shoes where people had no alternative. Um, there was no no one selling shoes in a sense to them. So, I think, you know, what a lot of these organizations, Warby Parker, Tom's and others are doing is they're going to those most remote places where there's the most acute need. For example, I spoke to Scott Harrison, who founded Charity Water, which is the largest water charity in the U.S. and one of the fastest growing um, charities in the U.S. over the last decade of any category. And they go to the most extreme regions all around the world world location it's it stops you know people doing water portage and all of these things so these organizations are going out into the world and really kind of um digging in where the need is most acute so i mean i have huge ad- admiration for them because you have to be heart-led every day you have to choose am i going to just default to the bottom line or am i going to stay true to my mission and i just love these people i just i have so much respect for them and and the journeys they've run have been so amazing you know 
Absolutely. No, I, I 100% commend Tom Shoes for that. And I think they are an inspiration for a lot of other companies doing and performing similar models. I also like how uh, it also kind of contributed to their brand, uh, to their profitability as well. You know, if you buy a pair of Tom Shoes, one is going to go to someone in need. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. The question I mean, that, yeah, yeah. I was no, going to say a question is, is this, though. When like your typical business owner hears that, they say, you know, I'd love to give away, you know, one for every one, but it's going to affect my bottom line and I'm not going to be able to stay in business, hire more employees and have impact in the way that I want to have impact. So I guess, do you consider that model more charity and charitable contributions to society or do you consider that part of a for-profit business plan that will result in a, you know, increased profitability? Yeah, it depends what you you measure. If you only look at the bottom line, there's certainly some compromises being made because you have to accommodate the price of whatever you're giving away, that other pair of shoes, that other pair of glasses. But folks like Warby Parker and others have worked out how to get, you know, they manufacture in China and the differential between the cost of the product to make in China and how they sell it here still leaves enough of a margin for them to have a very successful business while still making that contribution. It was interesting. Um, you know, I think when you measure the contribution, if you give that equal weight to the bottom line profit, then you're actually ahead. So, you know, for me at WeFirst or for companies like this, to have a business that just makes profit without a contribution is actually a loss. You are making more money, but you are having no impact. Because so it depends on your come from. If you're only measuring the bottom line, then that's one thing. But if you're looking at business as a fundamental tool by which we can create an impact at scale at a time when it's needed most, and you have the privilege and opportunity and, dare I say, responsibility to do so, to not work that out almost seems like a missed opportunity. And so, you know, in my mind, I think we're going to see more and more businesses that whether it's through a percentage of sales as a donation or a one-for-one model or whether it's creating net positive, you know, products that actually take carbon out of the air or create clean water or whatever, everyone's going to show up in different ways so that business is actually a tool for a positive impact. And speaking of positivity, we had the, a positive psychologist on yesterday uh, named Sean yeah. Acor. Uh, he went viral on a TEDx talk and he was uh, just talking about how there's a, a positive correlation between positive workers and profitability. Yeah. Yeah. So I asked him about, well, this is interesting. You know, we talk about social enterprises and mission-driven companies and people aligning their values with their companies that gives them some fulfillment and meaning within their work. Um, And and that is a great way uh, to see some profitability. Now, I asked him, you know, you mentioned banking and insurance. It's just a little bit harder for them uh, to explain this purpose for their employees to come to work every day. How do you see these industries changing? The traditional companies that are large, large corporations, such as insurance, such as banking. Well, I think everyone's changing, and it's it's fairly recent in the last eighteen months. But you know, if you look at Larry Fink, who's the CEO of the largest hedge fund in the world, they manage seven point six trillion in assets. His annual letter, you know, to CEOs is a bellwether for the stock markets around the world. And he's, he's called out the need for stakeholder capitalism recently. 
He's called out the need for brands to have a social purpose in addition to a, you know, a business profit. And in his most recent letter, he said that there's a fundamental restructuring of the capital markets coming because climate is going to have such an effect. Even the big investment firms can't recommend investing in companies that aren't set up to succeed in the future because they're not sustainable, because they're not built for, you know, violent weather and all these other things that come with the climate crisis. So by extension, you're looking at the banking world. I mean, you look at what Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan Chase and, you know, the initiatives that Goldman Sachs has and so on. You know, there are a lot of people who criticize them for various things they do, but there are also a lot, lot of initiatives the business roundtable announcement where they said the, the, the fundamental purpose of a corporation is actually stakeholder, you know, to be in service of stakeholders rather than just shareholders, for example. But you're seeing in the insurance and banking world so many changes. Like in banking, you've got in Europe banks like Lombard ODA, which is all about rethink everything, and they're re-engineering the way banking is done. Here in the U.S., you've got Aspiration and Beneficial and Umqua Bank, all of which not only do things on a consumer side in terms of, you know, managing fees responsibly and no hidden fees and, and doing the, the business of banking more responsibly, but they also give back in very, very tangible ways. And I think what you're going to see now is people are going to, as an extension of impact investing and so on, everyone on a daily business is going to want their money to work for them if they're putting it in a bank or wherever, but they're also going to want, want to make sure that their money is making a contribution in some way and they're going to want to see these big players you know, make a difference out there. So, and then the last note I'd say about this is even in the banking and insurance world, they're all facing certain fundamentals. If you're a purposeful company, if you're making a difference, it enhances your reputation. It increases your ability to attract top talent, to get the most out of that talent. As you say, there's positive psychologists were saying happy people are more productive people retain that talent longer to actually engage customers or consumers, especially millennials and Gen Z who want to buy from or work for companies that are doing good and also to have an impact in the world which ultimately benefits them because things like climate crisis and all these other issues are now affecting agriculture, their supply chain, their ability to attract talent, their reputation in the marketplace. So I don't think whether there's no industry that it's exempt now. And it's really interesting. One final note on that is if you look at one of the largest companies in the world, Walmart, they just announced in the last month that they're going to become a regenerative company. And that that's more than sustainable. Yeah. Sustainable is, you know, we're going to kind of do less bad and hopefully more good. But regenerative is about restoring and renewing, you know, the environment, our future. And that's a very, very big step. So I don't think anyone's exempt anymore. I, I want to stay on that point. Uh, sure. Of, you mentioned regenerative now, I, I had a conversation with a, a business owner who I'll mention a little bit later throughout this example, and there were three ways to basically measure impact. And I want to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. The first one was companies that are incidental. You create a product and it's going to bring jobs to life. And yeah. uh, if it's an iPhone, it's going to be more convenient. People are going to be, be able to make more phone calls and it'll have some sort of impact. Uh, mm -hmm. The next one was broad, kind of like shallow, but very expansive. Um, you do this at scale, but, uh, you know, the the impact is is somewhat, you know, it's kind of minuscule in a, mm -hmm. in a way, uh, whether it's uh, like raised, again, raised income levels. Uh, it could be, uh, you know, a reduction in your uh, fossil fuels, your carbon emissions and your distribution, whatever that may be. 
um, taking the BIA, you know, the BIA assessment. And the last one is deep impact. And I think that's what you just mentioned with regenerative. It's going mm-hmm. a step further. It's being more intentional. A company that, com- that comes to mind would be SharedX, who I had this conversa- conversation with. Uh, they're mm-hmm. intentionally going to smallholder farmers, people that produce 70% of the world's food, yet consist of 70% of the world's poor. And they're right. bringing new uh, technology. They're uh, doing almost like a co-op uh, men, you know, organization while they're implementing regenerative agricultural techniques that are right. increasing the crop yields, increasing uh, farmer incomes, uh, which is going just a little bit deeper and expansive as they continue to build out this model. What is deep impact to you? And how do you think about these three levels of impact when you're looking at these companies? Yeah, I'd, I'd almost characterize those three different groups across a different sort of um, you know, framework, which is the past and the future. Mm. You know, those that are incidental or doing little difference at scale really have one foot, if not both, in the past. But what many people fail to realize is that solving for the greatest challenges today, like the livelihood of small farmers and with small holdings and so on, um, is actually a huge marketplace opportunity. Why? Because if they go in there and there's hundreds, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of small farmers around the world that are responsible for everything we take for granted, if you incrementally make a difference in their lives, there's a huge business opportunity to do that at scale. And folks like Peter Montes have said, you know, every one of these huge social and environmental crises that we're trying to solve for are huge marketplace opportunities. And so, I don't look at as those making money and those doing good. I look at them as those who sort of have a myopic view view where it's profit largely for profit's sake or those who go, wow, if we solve for these grand challenges out there, there's a huge marketplace opportunity. I mean, a dramatic example, you look at Elon Musk, you know, combustion engines, unsustainable transportation. He has gone through hell and, you know, he's had his own ups and downs in different ways to really make not only a viable alternative energy kind of exist in the automobile industry, but to take that at scale to the point that every other automaker is falling over themselves to compete. Now, he looked at it and sort of saw it as a marketplace opportunity at some point back in whenever it was early 2000s, and everyone thought he was crazy, and everyone tried to run him out of business, and everyone thought he'd fail, and he almost did so many times. And he's a dramatic example and an exception for sure. But it's no different you know, access to clean water or, you know, solving for the climate crisis or regenerative agriculture, as you say, these are all huge marketplace opportunities. So deep impact to me is those who actually marry the acumen, the the smarts, the rigor of business and map that against our greatest needs today. And in 10 years time, everyone will be like, oh, wow, you're so lucky. Your company is so huge and blown up. It's so self-evident. And you're like, no, 10 years ago, no one was even talking about this. It was just a problem that no one wanted to solve. And that's where I think the, the timeless entrepreneurial spirit can be most meaningfully applied. Throw it into the deepest end of the pool. Take on those hardest challenges. And when you do that, when you unlock it, because the problem is so great, the scale of the opportunity is equally as great. And then you'll have enormous success. Then how important do you think measuring impact is? And is there, is there a certain scale that you think we can agree upon? Yeah, I mean, well, I think transparency or accountability is more important than ever. 
we've gone past the emotional argument that we need to, business needs to be a force for good. Every day we read in the paper, we're in so much trouble. COVID has come along and slapped humanity on the side of the head and said, you know, wake up. You know, the Black Lives Matter movement all around the world has just shown the fallout of these things. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal last week talking about how impact investors have woken up to the fact that issues like climate and so on are not just sort of isolated in a vacuum. They have a huge knock-on effect like disparity of wealth or, you know, um, racial inequality. And they're starting to see that by solving for one, they can solve for others. And that's, that's, that, that's really, really important. So, you know, I, I think you've got to be transparent. You've got to be accountable. Why? So that you're defensible in public because millennials and Gen Z don't trust marketing. They don't trust institutions. They don't trust what people say. They're like, show me. So when BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement was happening all around the world, and all these companies raced out, raced, you know, raced to market and said, yeah, we believe in diversity and inclusion and so on and equity. Um, everyone's like, stop saying that. We don't want to hear your empty hollow promises. Show us your board. Right. Show us the diversity. Show us how you incentivize and reward employees. Show us your onboarding process and who you hire. Show us the details. And that's the new normal. It, it's an interesting normal. And I think that's why I think measuring impact is going to be so important because there's there's many organizations. I was speaking with someone in private equity, like, yeah, green bonds, green bonds yeah. is where it's at. However, green bonds are also just a way to say that you are doing a good thing and you really don't have to pay attention to it. That's right, right. how he explained it to me. It was really interesting for me. Now, on this episode I did yesterday with this positive psychologist, the right. example was of a threshold that you reach of positivity or growth, joy through growth was his definition of happiness. And as you get older, your threshold for happiness becomes higher. You do your first podcast, you're really thrilled about it. You do 20, it's really not the same level of happiness that you get. from. Maybe it is, uh, not for others. Every time we get together, I'm more happy, Kevin. That's right. No, it just keeps going through the roof. It's going to be sheer delirium in about six months. The example I gave was I was surfing the other day and I get off off my surf and I see a little one or two year old girl with her father and she built her first sandcastle and she was thrilled about it. She was so excited. She started jumping up and down laughing and me, my buddy, we just started laughing and we go, that little thing gave her so much joy. Me, yeah. you know, a little bit older than this two-year-old, probably not as excited about that. So what I'm saying is the level of of uh, the threshold I want to reach for my joy and my happiness gets higher and higher. Will there ever be a time when people say, this is good enough? No, I'm, I'm, I'm content with the way the business community is handling these problems. Or do you think the goalposts will continue to move back? You know, it's a complicated answer, but I'll give a couple of notes in it. I think fundamental to every human being is a a balance between healthy self-interest, because you want to take care of yourself, your family, your quality of life, and also selfishness, that instinct where you want to kind of get more at at the the expense of others. And that balance is obviously impacted by the media and by business at large, greed is good. You know, the wolf of Wall Street, all that sort of thing. What is interesting of late is that the cost of those excesses has become very clear to everybody, you know, even more so thanks thanks to COVID. You know, if we treat the planet poorly, it can lead to these sorts of things. And suddenly mil- millions of jobs and trillions of dollars and everyone's livelihood and social life can disappear overnight. So we're supremely um, fragile. 
you know, but I think there's something deeper going on, which is I think in life there's a, a, f- a fundamental quest for something what might be described as fulfillment or significance. You know, there was meaning to me having time on the planet. And we're seeing this play out on a macro scale right now where you see countries like Iceland and New Zealand actually institute the fact that they're going to measure growth, economic growth in terms of well-being and happiness rather than GDP, gross domestic products and so on. And, you know, these, these are macro kind of examples of really what's happening at a human level where we're saying, wow, you know, during COVID, I haven't been able to see all my friends and I've really appreciated them. I've slowed down my life because none of us could jump on a plane and we couldn't run around and have all our normal social life. And I've realized who the people are in my life I really care about. I've realized the simple things like walking around my neighborhood at night and just appreciating the plants and the simple things. And I haven't been walked outside under the stars at night. And you've kind of gone, wow, what's important now? Mm. You know, it's the simple things. It's the people we care about, the people we love, the environment we in, you know, the planet we respect. I've, I've taken my daughters to gardens around here in L.A., three times now we just walked around looking at plants talking about the design and how amazing you know nature is and how different habitats have different conversations we had never otherwise had and so all of that is to say i think business i hope is having a reawakening now the same way almost after the black plague came the renaissance in a way where we're waking up to the fact that we've we've had this terrible crisis play out around the world We've been forced to stop and reconsider what we're doing. And as a function of that, we've all been very mindful of the simple but more important things in life. And I hope to some extent that business won't lurch back to what it was doing before, but will retool itself and say, okay, we're going to work hard, but we're going to work hard to restore the planet and to improve the quality of life for more people. Why? So that business can thrive and that we have a future and we have a planet to live on. It's in our own self-interest ultimately. And that's healthy, healthy self-interest at a, at a species level. How much, I guess, yeah, how much does the, the government or the public sector play a role in private sector innovation and transformation, just like you mentioned? You know, this is a, that's an interesting question to ask it this year with this election. I mean, you know, there's so many factors that go into it. There's always been a dynamic playing out between business and government. There's also been a backroom going on with lobbyists and everything else. There's also been the election cycle where corporations can now make donations, you know, as if they were people, you know, and those sort of rulings that have given that have played into the ability for corporations to lobby for laws that they want that serve their interests. So it's a very complicated issue. But I think the issues that we're facing are now of a sufficient scale that we not only need in small companies and social entrepreneurs, but large companies and competitors and industries and sectors to work together so that we can meet these challenges with equal force. Because, you know, business can advocate for changes in legislation all day long to protect the planet. But unless you know, government comes to the party, it's going to get very hard. It's very hard to get that done. And so I think we're going to need all the different sectors working together. And I think, you know, we're so arrogant as humans. I say that on behalf of humanity problem. We think somehow that we can escape these issues which are larger than ourselves. The reality is the planet doesn't care whether we survive or not. 
COVID doesn't care about what car you drive or what club you go to. Hmm. You know, these issues we're solving for threaten our, our very survival. And even The Guardian last week, I think, had an article that said, you know, one-fifth of the countries um, on the planet are facing ecosystem failure, biodiversity failure, where there's enough, you know, species being threatened within their own ecosystem that they're collapsing because these they're all dependent on each other. And all of that is to say that, and they call you know biodiversity loss the silent killer because by the time we realize it's there, it's too late. So all of that is to say that I think people will change, I think business will change, but I hope they won't do it too late because these issues are much larger than ourselves and we are expendable. We don't matter at the end of the day. We're not at the top of the food chain. We are one part of this larger ecosystem. And unlike everyone else in the ecosystem, we're not respecting the others. We're not embracing our codependence. We're not scaling our shared responsibility to the integrity of the whole. And that's going to cost us. See, the thing I've been thinking about a lot, Simon, is, you know, whether it's you uh, experiencing something in a third world country, whether it's uh, someone in a coral reef or Tom's shoes, seeing a boy without his shoes, um, having an understanding of what goes on outside of a developed country, I think is really important. So when I see what's going on in this world, in our country today, it just makes me wonder, the question I'll spit back to you is, will it ever be good enough? And so what I think we're in right now is what I heard from Matthew Weatherly White, uh, who's the founder, co-founder of Caprock. He says, you know, I think we're in in between reigns. I think we're in an interregnum, he called it, a, mm-hmm. a period between reigns. Uh, it's like a lame duck almost mm-hmm. when society revolts and society is 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 problematic. It, it's frustrated with what's going on. It is demanding change. And this is the period of time when something really does happen and really does make a change. I think COVID accelerated it, but what are your thoughts on 2021? 2020 was a crazy year. Are you you saying the buckle up for 2021? What do you think is going to happen next? I think I, I agree that this is a reset moment. You know, I think things need to break down before they can be put back together in a different way. And I think that is happening And I think what is also happening is we're building the requisite coalition of stakeholders that is necessary to even be able to offer a viable alternative. Because what I mean is if social entrepreneurs want to make the world a better place, but big business doesn't, we're all dead in the water. If big business does, but consumers don't still want to buy the same old stuff that harms the planet, it's not going to change. But now we're seeing consumers, investors, employees, CEOs all waking up. And that has been given sort of greater urgency due to COVID. In that context, 2021, I think, is going to be much like 2020 in that I think, you know, COVID and its fallout, especially with what you're seeing going on with in the UK, throughout Europe, throughout here in the United States, you know, notable exceptions, Australia and New Zealand and so on right now and some other countries. Um, we're not, we're not over this in any way. We've got another at least six months ahead of us, especially as some of the vaccine trials seem to have faltered. Hmm. So all of that is to say that we're still going to be in this sort of mode for some time. And a lot of progress that might otherwise happen is being stalled by the election process and how long that takes and then the holidays and the new year and, and so on. With that in mind, I think, you know, 2021 will be 
we might start at the end of 2021 to start looking at what is next. But that broader context doesn't stop any one of, any one of us showing up in new ways today. And I know we first, and for myself and my team, we are you know, busy than ever and doubling down on our efforts because the reason to do so is all around us. And I do hear time and again stories of entrepreneurs starting businesses that are dramatically different, truly disruptive in their own right, simply because it's so clear to them the urgency of the need. You know, when you're an older person like me with this gray hair, it's like, oh, we've had our career and maybe we need to wake up and we might have a bit of a legacy after our career. <laughs> when these our inertia and our old thinking and behavior, they're like, oh, my God. I don't know if you guys have looked around lately, but this is a mess and we need to be doing something different. And they're just going for it. And they are less attached to other people's projected versions of success. They're less owned by the material possessions they have. They don't want boats, cars, and planes and whatever. They want to have a quality life. They want to collect experiences over possessions. And they want to, in the equation of what makes life valuable to them, have a very healthy blend between money and making a difference. And so all of that is to say, I think we are already feeling this undercurrent of a whole generation of business leaders coming through that are looking at the world with fresh eyes and that are recasting business as a tool to drive change at scale that allows you to make money to take it to scale as opposed to the other way around, which is let's just make gobs of money and build ever higher gates as everything falls apart around us. And I'm really excited about it. I'm optimistic because of that. I love that. The undercurrent of forces. Yeah. Uh, all you can do is ride the wave. You don't get to choose where the wave takes you, though. And people don't know it's there until they join in. It's kind of like um, you're in the surf. And everybody's flailing about and flapping around with all the foam and all of that crap. And then you dive down underneath. And you didn't realize that after that wave broke, there's three or four other guys on their boards or whatever else sort of, you know, kicking and trying to find which way up. There's a whole thing going on underneath here that no one even knew, ever, ever knew. And uh, so when you do get into the swim of change, you're like, damn, this person's doing that and this and that and this and that. And oh, oh, my God, that's so exciting. And I tell you, from my experience, I spent 18 years as an ad guy working in Australia, London, and then all over the States. And... Um, I was in that self-important advertising industry. And I, I don't mean to overgeneralize or speak to the people in the industry. It's amazing. But it was a, it's a self-centered industry. It's like what's cool, you know, where the cool agency, whatever it might be. Um, and it's changed a lot in the last few years. But I would say that when I stepped away from that and went into more of a you know, purpose-led um, arena and started my own company, I discovered – people and efforts and entrepreneurship and change agents that I never knew existed in my advertising bubble. Clueless. And uh, there is an army of people out there making a difference who are smart, talented, passionate, going 100 miles an hour, and they're not waiting for you. I'll tell you, you know, when I started We First, Scott Harrison was just starting Charity Water or had just started it. Blake McCoskey just started Tom's. And I went, I spoke at the first Mashable Social Good Summit in New York way back when. And I was sitting in the green room and like Chrissy Turlington was there. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Chrissy Turlington. I remember her as a model, you know, whatever. 
because I'm totally intimidated by these people. Nicholas Necroponte, who started one laptop per, per child, Scott Harrison, and I, and I interviewed Scott this week on my podcast, and we've known each other for 10, 12 years now. And uh, and and I was like, you remember that way back? Yeah, and I was like, you were nice enough to speak to this random dude. My experience of it is this. We're all running a million miles an hour, head down, a million miles an hour to drive change using our specific skill sets. And occasionally you look across and you go, oh, my God, Scott, how you doing, buddy? Scott, it's going great. Charity work, that's awesome, so cool. Got to go. Doing this. And everyone's just running. And, and But there's thousands of people just running headlong for the future, doing everything they can, big, small, successful, not billion dollar companies, small companies, but they're all, they all turn on this urgency to drive change. And it's a fabulous place to be. It's exhausting. It's scary. It's uncertain. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I love it. I love that analogy. It is uncertain. Waves are uncertain. It's it's the undercurrent that's taking you. Now you they start. can take you so much further than you ever think, and then they can humiliate you. Simon st- Simon started out on the foam board in the whitewash. He was cooking yeah. it up, and now he's riding a twin fin, just getting barreled every day. Right. Listen, I'm jealous of you. You're in the water the other day. I've got one board here at the office. I'm at the office. I'm the only one who comes in because everyone's working remotely. They got another board at home. It's mounted and whatever. They don't get wet enough. You know, I just don't get in the water enough. And I'm a bit of a, I don't, I'm not a fan of the cold water. I'm just a big softy, you know. It is, well, just throw in a wetsuit. Yeah, I know. I got a wetsuit, of course, but I'm still a bit, you know, I like warm water. I grew up in Australia. So, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a softy. What's that warm way. for you? It's like, it's like 68 degrees the other day. Is Say that, that again? I said it was like, it was 68 degrees the other day. Is that not warm? I know. That's not, that's not too bad. Yeah, I know. I know. Um, oh, yeah, I'm gonna. We're, I'm actually in the middle of you know out. writing and writing a new book right now. When I come out the other side, I'm gonna get back into the water. I'm gonna drive up about an hour and a half. Come see you. I'm yeah, you're gonna say, dude. Gonna I don't care what you're board. doing. Put your board in the back. We're going. We're going. And uh, yeah, no, I, I, I look forward to it. I'll I'll rise to the challenge. That's interesting, though. I mean, you said you're running and you see Scott and and that really right there, I think, describes a lot of the people in the impact community. What do you think makes this community so unique? I think, you know what, it's interesting you say that because I've seen a number of different motivations behind it all. Some people just innately, you know, are that way. They have high emotional IQ and they really want to kind of show up in that way. But more often than not, People have had some sort of moment in their life that kind of pointed it in a new direction. Mm. I know Scott Harrison, you know, he was a nightclub owner. He was partying, you know, to death in New York. He went and had a transformative experience, you know, um, as a photojournalist on a medical ship that showed him the other side of life. And he changed everything and launched Charity Water. For me, actually, it was the sudden passing of my father when, and, you know, it just kind of made me reconsider everything I was doing. And uh, time and again, I speak to people like, you know, I was speaking to the CEO of Amaze, which is this platform that, you know, raises funds for nonprofits in very dynamic and interesting um, for-profit ways. And, you know, he had, he actually died. He actually flatlined while he was running Amaze. And um, he's retooled the company since for that reason. And it's interesting what he shared with me, which is uh, kind of completely unrelated to your question, but it still stays with me. 
And if you listen to my podcast, it's called Lead With We, and you can look up the amazing thing. He, it's his story. But he was saying how he actually flatlined in the hospital and his mother, who is a nurse, was pleading with the doctors not to call it. And he flatlined for a long time. I think it was four minutes or seven minutes or something crazy. And, um, you know, his mother begged the doctor not to call it. And suddenly, a moment later, he came out of, you know, whatever the, the arrest, cardiac arrest that he was having. And the one thing he remembers is that everyone on the hospital floor, the other doctors and nurses had gathered outside the window of his room and were just all standing there in silence, sending love. And he said he'd never seen that before. But when people, when the people on the floor of a hospital know someone's dying, they come together and they just send their love to that person in that moment to try and help them recover. And I found that very moving. It's like looking through a glass window and seeing a, a silent choir there. And, you know, I, I think, and that was his, you know, not only had he started a maze, but it was a transformative experience for him. And I think more often than not, I find people have had some experience where what they thought they were supposed to do in life wasn't of value or what they were doing wasn't in alignment with who they are or that they would find greater fulfillment and meaning by contributing to others rather than trying to be of service to themselves only. And I think that's the common denominator. It, it just gives you chills, you know, hearing right? a story like that. It's, yeah. and, and that sense of connectivity is something that, is one of the biggest proponents for someone's happiness in their life. And and when that's yeah. kind of taken away with COVID staying indoors, Simon, I just told you I moved in. I wanted to give my, my landlord or my landlord and my neighbors a handshake. I couldn't, it was weird. Yeah. You know, we'll just get back to normal. And you think about that and in terms of impact and happiness and measuring that and well-being, mm-hmm. Do you feel that sense of connectivity kind of gets lost among those measurements? Yeah, I think it has been a very, um, I mean, if you had to design the most powerful global experience or experiment to make people realize our fundamental connection to each other as part of the human family, it would probably look like everyone has something or potentially has something that means you can't get near each other. And you can't breathe on each other. You can't hug each other. You can't kiss each other. You can't spoon with each other. You can't party with each other. You, you can't dance with each other. It's mental innate connectivity stripped away from us. And we're all suffering the diminishment of the quality of life that comes from that. You know, life becomes much smaller. It becomes much more repetitive. The moments that make life joyful and meaningful slowly disappear. They recede from view. You look at your week and you go, well, what am I looking forward to at the end of my week? What what was it about that holiday that I was going to take that was going to be so special? It was the times with my friends, dancing with my friends, doing whatever it is. And so I think we're going through this, um, almost this experiment, which is saying, okay, the way you've been behaving telegraphs to the universe at large, I'm just making this up, that you have no regard for your fundamental connection to each other within the human family. You are killing each other. You are 
taking all the spoils at the cost of somebody else. You're destroying the planet on which you and everyone else depends. Clearly, you're not really that invested in your fundamental codependence on each other and so on. So, you know, we've had that stripped away from us and now we're all suffering because of it. And I think the mental toll of all of this is going to be much greater than people know and it's going to go on for some time, especially in younger people. But, you know, I've become acutely um, aware of the privilege that we have to, you know, the intimacy of our relationships at scale. And, And I think, you know, COVID made us realize that we're all part of the human family, whether we're in Italy standing on a balcony applauding ER doctors that we can't even see at seven o'clock every night because of the service they're giving to unknown people behind masks and ventilators, you know, or whether, you know, it's people wearing masks that say, you know, I'm wearing this because I care about you, Um, or whether it's as simple as somebody getting a, a COVID test or getting a flu shot to better equip themselves and others to stay healthy. I mean, it's really we've had to start to learn how to show up for each other again. And I hope that's something we carry forward. Tell you what, I do know that there is going to be a lot of parties and and more on the other side of this. There is going to be people, it's just going to be bodies just wrapped around each other for an extended period of time all over the world when we're on the other side of this madness, because I think everyone misses human contact, that emotional connection. And in all those parties, there'll be one Australian in the back corner. Oh yeah. There's always the one Australian. (laughs) There's 21, 25 million of us, and they're scattered around individual parties all around the world at any one time. But no, there, you know, um, and I, I, will, I will say I'm, I'm particularly sensitive to this because as an Australian, you've got this whole idea of, you know, g'day, mate. You hear that, that, car- that caricature of Australians like g'day, you know, it's 100% true. You see, because I'm an Australian, so g'day, mate, how you doing? And, you know, everyone's your mate, everyone's the same level. Right. And I, I didn't realize how important that was until. I worked in London for a long time and, you know, there's this pecking order and what public school did you go to? And it's all very fabulous. Well, there's no great leveler there. And then you come to the States and it's like, who's got the most money? And again, grossly oversimplifying, but in Australia, there's a very, um, there's a, there's a great spirit of camaraderie in the sense that uh, everyone, everyone's an Australian. Everyone's, everyone's, everyone's equal in a sense. And I've I've been made very um, aware of that over the last, 22 years that I've been here in the States. So now speaking of the culture, then let's stay on that topic. Like what have you, since you have a lot of conversations with other like business leaders and, you know, in our community, have you had any conversations about uh, the work culture uh, now going remote, uh, bringing in more diversity? Let's say I've also heard about these new towns called zoom towns, not boom towns. Now people are moving away maybe reflecting a little bit more, which is also great. But in terms of the sense of connectivity in the workforce, what conversations have you had with business owners in this space to make sure that people are still, like we said, being happy and leading to profitability? Yeah, I I mean, Zoom living is interesting. You hear about Zoom gloom. I think hopefully the world will be better off because we're, we're, we're operating in a distributed way now. We're jumping on planes less. We're putting less of a toll on the planet and so on, you know. And so I hope there's a little bit of an equilibrium. I know I'm happier in my life. I used to jump on a plane every week. And I think, um, I think I'm happier because the pace of life has slowed down. And, you know, I don't know what it's like with you, Kevin, but now I go out and I see a few people and we're all safe, social distancing and all that sort of stuff. After socializing for a while, I'm exhausted. 
said, hey, how did we do that all the time? How did we go every Friday night? How did we see people back to back? It's exhausting. So I hope we've all, we all slow down and the pace is more balanced. But I do think <clears throat> we're going to see this, these lily pads of communities all around the world, you know, small ones within a company, large ones in a you know, massive company, across communities, organizations, people who care about the same things. And they're all going to be that much more intimately connected through Zoom and its equivalents out there. And I, I think there's just been a massive reset. We've been forcibly trained over the last six months to reorientate our entire lives to do it, arguably as effectively remotely. And I think a lot of that will be carried forward. And you already see it with a lot of companies saying they're going to stay remote. It's interesting, too. I also heard another story about um, business owners preparing for dealing with inter-conflict after, after the election is over, like between employees uh, who may be at a ch- each other's throats and know who each other are voting for. And it's kind of ridiculous, but it's also something I've also heard in education space. Like uh, my uncle's uh, on, the, on the board of some school in, in Portland, Oregon, and they're having to prepare for recess uh school fights because of this thing like have you had any conversations about this no i think i i've heard of a lot of organizations that more often than not were a little bit dysfunctional in the first place Mm. and therefore this has exacerbated that but i've also heard that if your company was in a good place and people had good dynamics in place to have a healthy culture then that's continued so i think this remote dynamic has sort of thrown into relief whether you'd prioritize maintaining a healthy culture enough. And if you had, you're doing okay. And if you hadn't, it's really exposed that it's like good parenting or bad parenting. When the stress comes in, you know, you either hold up or things can go a bit crazy. Uh, As a parent, what, like, what do you think has maybe has been, like you said, United States, it's all about money broadly, you know, uh, speaking here. As a parent, though, what do you think has been maybe the failure of a lot of American parents? Maybe like I know uh, the, the one of the head guys from Google was saying, you know, my own father as an Asian family was always telling me to go to the best school, was drilling into me every day. You're going to be happy when you're at Harvard. And I mm-hmm. got there and I wasn't happy. And that was a failure of his teaching. Like as a parent, um, you know, uh, raising daughters. Like, how, do, has there been a failure of parenting in, in this country? And do you think that parents should maybe focus more on a different type of happiness? Yeah, um, you know, there's so many aspects to that. There's a couple of things I'd say. One is some, uh, there's a Persian poet called Khalil Gibran I like, where he talks about children being arrows that you launch into the future. And I, 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 I see it that way. We're not you know, we're, we prepare them as best as we can, and then we propel them to their own future. So we want to set them up for success in a sense. Um, I I think that I, I, I came from a similar mindset. I went to St. Paul's College at Sydney University where my grandfather went, my father went, my brother went. We, we did the right things. Um, and arguably it's been a lot of my career trying to find the right whatever version of success. I think like the great educator who just passed, Sir Ken Robinson, said that a lot of education teaches the creativity out of children. And I think we the best thing a parent can do is see their children with clear eyes and let, and let that be expressed, sort of be an enabler and let them be the sort of fertile soil in which they grow. But don't be prescriptive. Even if you think it's motivated by your love for them, 
to make sure they succeed and have the best financial future. I think the more aligned people are with what they love to do, the more successful they'll be and they'll be able to make a living. So we've taken that pressure off our, our daughters, and it doesn't mean they didn't step up. They've done extraordinarily well. But I would love to see where they want to go with their lives instead of where I wanted them to go with their lives. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it's a, I mean, obviously, we're not trying to tell anyone how to parent here at all. Uh, just curious. I would be the last person to tell someone how yeah, to parent. Yeah, just ask not. my daughters. Um, yeah, exactly. That's, that's just to be clear here, folks. Yeah. Um, now, I just think that's important. Now, uh, mm-hmm. we started off the conversation talking about Ben and Jerry's, about how they maybe ha- were innovative in the approach of, you know, latching on to these movements, these you know, progressive movements in the country, whether it was gay rights, gay pride, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, you know, sustainability, innovation, transparency. They're certified B Corporation as well. In this day and age, Simon, what do you think is the next movement and what is next to come uh, in the next few years in terms of innovation? You know, your guess is as good as mine, Mm. but I think the dominant issue out there today is the climate crisis because there's a huge knock-on effect. Lack of access to clean water will lead to sort of climate refugees, which will lead to protectionism. And, and, you know, even if people do allow other people into their countries, there's going to, there can be civil unrest. There's going to be huge knock-on effects. So I think, you know, solving for the climate crisis is going to be the number one overriding concern because by doing so, We'll be solving for many, many other issues. But I think also the way that the disparity of wealth is showing up right now um, is is very consequential because there's a point of intolerance for everyone right now where, you know, if you if you don't have some sort of role or piece of the prosperity equation, then at some point people give up and they just want to take what they take what's theirs. And, you know, I think this is a real question that's, you know, the challenge we're facing right now, which is, you know, how do we recognize that we're only doing ourselves and everyone a huge disservice by not supporting more people and giving them, as you say, not, you know, not just a, uh, the minimum wage, but a living wage and, and making sure that they can get ahead. And so I think, you know, climate crisis and I think doing a better job of, you know, sh- Sharing the the prosperity that capitalism can generate more evenly is the two most important issues for us to avoid what could be a very, very disruptive future. And I'd hate to see that for for anyone. And we've already had a taste of it this year and really don't want it to keep going further, you know? Absolutely. In the last podcast, you know, I I said something, you know, what can we agree upon? Is there something in the middle we can agree upon? The last question I have for you today, Simon, yeah. is uh, understanding that there actually is an election coming up next month. Not it right? wasn't it was really? October. I, fi- I figured that really? out a bit late. I had no idea. <laughs> I, I, you turn your back and no, absolutely. We're just going to yeah. assume there's an election coming up. Mm-hmm. We're just going to assume that. Yeah. Uh, what advice do you have to bring people together? You know, I think the issues themselves are rallying points for people, you know, irrespective of what you believe, what your political party is. I think, you know, in as much as government dictates our lives to a large extent and the legislation it makes and so on, these are the opportunities we have to put someone in office that hopefully aligns with what you'd like to see for your own future and everybody else's. And I think 
this is not an election over issues specifically. It's a really an election about the de democracy outright. And my hope would be that people will come together around their support of democracy as an institution. It is the foundation of this country. It is critical all around the world. The US is admired with good reason all around the world as the exemplar of this or has been for a long time. And, you know, when these sort of issues at this foundational level are called into question, that could be hugely consequential around the world, in which case we need everyone to come together around democracy itself and to embrace their right to vote, to be heard, and to make sure that they have a government that represents, you know, what they want for their future. So, you know, I think voting is the thing that we need to rally around, and that is the engine that will drive the change we need to see. I love it. Love it. And this election is just another wave, Simon. Appreciate you coming back on the Keep It Real series. Thank number four, you. Number four of the uh, the Reelers, uh Keep It Real series with Simon Mainwaring. Uh, Simon, it's always a pleasure. We'll see you next month. And take care, my friend. Yeah, take care. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Bye everyone. Today.